if you look at the last 30 years, equities uh, in India have basically delivered 30x return. And uh, I think Nifty has grown at a CAGR of 13%. And you know, if, if people invest at 10,000 rupees, I think it will be something like uh, 2.4 lakh to, rupees today. What I'm trying to say is, it's not to say that you know, fixed income or bonds are likely to outperform equities. Far, far from it. I still believe that equities is a great asset class. But what I'm trying to say is that we should not get carried away to make it a gospel truth yep. that equities is the only way to make money. 25 years ago, every presentation of mine started with what is a mutual fund and explaining the basics of the industry. Today, of course, everybody knows what it is. People have got more and more sophisticated. As you said, products like SIPs have become uh, the way this industry has really reached out to investors. What I find really interesting is the cumulative returns over the last now 29 years from Nifty and the ISEC Sovereign Bond Index are basically the same. They are the same. They are the same. When equities outperform, the equity outperforms a lot, like, right? So right. you know, it's when you. That's why these percentages, these stats need to be looked at a little carefully. Do not extrapolate short-term performance to long-term, you know, right. just because last three years' returns have been great. It doesn't matter which asset class. I'm, I'm not talking. About. Don't assume that the next five, 10, 15 years will look like the last two or three. Correct. Years. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Open Dialogue. Today, we cover a very interesting topic. We have all known equities as a way of creating wealth. In today's topic, we take a completely different asset class, fixed income, and talk a little bit about this asset class and you know how it has performed and what drives the economics of this, this asset class. So joining me today is Shiva. Uh, Shiva is the head of fixed income at Axis Mutual Fund. He has more than 25 years of experience in the mutual fund industry. He actually was part of two startup teams in the uh, mutual fund space, first with uh, ABN uh, and also with Axis Mutual Fund. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a great conversation with Siva. So Siva, welcome to the, to the show. Thank you, Zomir. Great. So Siva, let me start with a few statistics, uh, right? So first is, if you look at the last 30 years, equities uh, in India have basically delivered 30x return. And uh, I think Nifty has grown at a CAGR of 13%. Uh, and you know, if, if people invest at 10,000 rupees, I think it will be something like uh, 2.4 lakh to rupees today. Uh, there are a very large number of DMAT accounts that have been opened in the country. Obviously, people have started investing a lot. And SIP volumes, as an example, I think have doubled in the last five years from some 7,000 crores to now approximately 17,000 crores. So, in the context of all of this, uh, obviously a very large part of the country now has started investing in equities. And there is almost a gospel truth that uh, equities is a great way of, you know, creating wealth. So, it will be great to, I'm putting you on a spot a little bit here, but it uh, will be great to understand your perspective on, on this and contrast that to fixed income. Thank you. So, first of all, I have absolutely no disagreements with anything that you have said. Fantastic asset class, long term, great way to make wealth. And I think investors have over the last, you know, 
like like you said, I've been in this business for 25 years. 25 years ago, every presentation of mine started with what is a mutual fund and explaining the basics of the industry. Today, of course, everybody knows what it is. People have got more and more sophisticated, as you said, products like SIPs have become uh, the way this industry has really reached out to investors. Obviously, we've made such a great success of equities. I don't think in the industry we've really, really touched as much on the fixed income side. I hope this conversation changes some attitudes towards fixed income as well. Some of the things that I'm going to talk about obviously will be pertaining to past performance and it's very important to understand that these stats and discussions that we will have pertain to past returns and may not necessarily be carried forward to the future. This is very, very important in any kind of investment decisions that please look at the past, understand the past, but don't assume that the past is going to get repeated in the future. You made a very important point about the last 30 years, right? That the returns from equities have been spectacular. It just so happens that about 30 years ago is when NSE started. Right. right, And we have Nifty data going back from about 1994. Right. Around that period of time is also when India started liberalizing interest rates. Right. And we started seeing a development of the GSEC market. And it so happens that ICSA Securities started an index of sovereign bonds called the ICSA Sovereign Bond Index, also going back to 1994. So now we have close to 30 years, but close to 29 years of data which shows the relative performance or just the performance of these asset classes in India over really long periods of time. What I find really interesting is the cumulative returns over the last now 29 years from Nifty and the ISEC Sovereign Bond Index are basically the same. They are the same. They are the same. Give or take, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and, and that incidentally was true when we started Access Mutual Fund in 2009. I looked at the data from 1994 to 2009. The returns were probably the same. And now, 14, 15 years later, 1994 to 2023, roughly the same. This is not something which resonates with anyone because it's like you said, the gospel truth is equities are the best way to make money in the long run. I think equities, yes, is probably the best way to make wealth. But we, when we look at equity performance or when we look at asset wealth creation, we look at the data that's available to us. Right. Right. Uh, we have data from India. Obviously, we are, we are in India. We have data from India. We look at the rest of the world and we look at, for example, data from the US, which is the market, which is uh, the deepest, largest and the best researched. And this returns from the S&P 500 have been spectacular over the last same period of time, 10, 20, 30 years. But if you look a little wider afield, it's mixed. If you look at countries in other than the US in the, Western, in the Western world, for example, the UK, look at the FTSE 100, you look at France or the Karant, come back, come to Asia, look at China or Hong Kong and many of the Asian countries. The returns over the last 20 years have been meh. For practical purposes, many of these indices are trading at the same levels they were trading at in the late 90s, back, yeah. yeah, 20 years back, ago. Yeah. So they've made no returns right. over really long periods of time. Right. And that, of course, this is related to economic performance. The fact that the US has done well, the fact that India has done well, means that the stock markets here have done well in relation to countries which have not done as well. China is, ex is an ex exception where the economy seems to have done well, but the stock market has not performed really well. What I'm trying to say is, it's not to say that you know fixed income or bonds are likely to outperform equities. Far, far from it. I still believe that equities is a great asset class. But what I'm trying to say is that we should not get carried away to make it a gospel truth yep. that equities is the only way to make money. Yep. 
and it's very important to have a so-called asset allocation approach which is to basically make sure that you have enough of different asset classes in your portfolio because these asset classes perform differently across cycles. Yeah, great. Siva, I just, you kind of mentioned in a fact which is a little incredible and you know, <laughs> uh, so I just want to ensure that I understood it right. So, government bonds between 94, Indian government bonds between 1994 and 2023 have broadly given the same returns as Indian equities between 1994 and 2023. Uh, yes, just just comparing an index, one index which existed from then because sure. we don't have many bond indices don't have 30 year history. So, sure. you know, the one index which does have that history uh, and of course, Nifty again, uh, going back to the same period of time, uh, caveats apply, like I said, past performance, etc. So, there are very important caveats. Sure. Yes, but so, so the cumulative returns does look very similar. Similar and <laughs> and because this is government securities, is it right to say that it has come at a lower risk? Uh, yes, and obviously in terms of the, you know, government securities cannot default, right? So therefore, it's a, it's a, there's no credit risk. Right. The volatility is much, much lower than equities. Right. Uh, so obviously from both from a price risk as well as from a credit risk or from a, from a you know, potential loss of capital, obviously investing in bonds or investing in GSEC specifically is much, much lower risk proposition. Uh, so. Yeah, again, I'll caveat this by saying it's not to say that, yeah, yeah, this is lower risk and better returns or whatever it is, oh, right? <laughs> so, we, we shouldn't read too much into it. But yes, over this period of time, that's been the case. Uh, what is really interesting is, you know, so this is point to point. So, obviously, there's going to be a question that's raised that, you know, what happened in right 1994, point, yeah. what happened in 2023, yeah. you know, that's the reason why these are, these are looking similar and, and, and that's a fair, uh, that's a fair question. So, instead of looking at a cumulative 29 year returns, if you break that up into five year rolling periods, right? so you look at every month and then look at the five year past performance of, or, or future performance, whichever the case, look at it and compare the two indices, you find that equities outperform maybe 55-60% of the time. Right. That's just slightly better than a coin toss. Right. So, which is another way of saying is we are in 2023 and if, if you were to ask me 2023 to 2028, is equities likely to outperform bonds, I would say it's as good as a coin toss. Right. Right. That is an incredible statement to make. Now, now the last three or four years, it is certainly the case that equities have outperformed bonds on a rolling basis. Yes. Okay. Given the spectacular returns that we have seen post-COVID, right? right? So, obviously, uh, 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 the recent history is very much in favor of equities as opposed to as opposed to bonds. Uh, but when you look at the longer period of time, there is a cycle. You see a cycle of outperformance and underperformance. And even on a five-year basis, it is difficult to say one does better than the other. It really depends on the economic economic yeah. cycle. Take a look at what happened in 2008 or 2013 when you had large drawdowns in equities or 2020 for that, sorry, when you had large drawdowns in equities. Those large drawdowns really don't happen in bonds and really that's that's the real uh, uh, reason why this, this five-year cycle happens. No, very, very, very kind of, I would say, uh, as you rightly said, like counterintuitive statements, right? Uh, that even on a five-year basis, uh, maybe equities outperform 60% of the time. So. So, there is that premium for risk, but that is maybe 10%. It is not uh, not always uh, 100%. Yeah, but when equities outperform, the equity outperforms a lot, like, right? So, right. you know, it's when you, that's why these percentages, these stats need to be looked at a little carefully. That, right. Yes, yeah, outperform maybe 55 or 60% of the time, but the outperformance then it's can be lot. quite, quite yeah. a bit. So, you know, that's why five-year cumulative returns, if you look at it, it, it on average, there is significant outperformance from equities. Now, if average five-year returns of equities is significantly higher than bonds, then why is it that 25-year or 30-year, the returns are so similar? 
Right. And that then becomes a question that if average returns of two asset classes, one is slightly better or uh, then why is it that the, the better performing asset class doesn't bet, do better over long periods of time. And I want to sort of talk about risk in a very different way. Right. right? If you look at, I, I use a term called drawdown and drawdown is essentially uh, a loss of your capital or a, or a fall in the value of your portfolio. Right. Uh, why I want to make, make this mention is that if you lose 10% of your capital, right, and you make back 10%, you're not back to the previous high. Absolutely. Right? Because start with 100, 10% down, you're 90. 10% up from 90, you're only at 99. You're right. not reached 100 again. Correct. Right? This is the thing about risk. That risk is not symmetric. That 10% drawdown is not the same as a 10% rally. When If you have 10% fall, you need 11% gain to go back. If you have a 20% fall, 100 going to 80, you need 25% to get, go back. And God forbid if you have in 2008, when your market fell by 50%, then obviously, you know, you have to double to go yeah. back to the previous high, right? So, falls are falls and gains are not symmetric. Even though we use so-called the arithmetic standard deviation to express risk, it is not symmetric. And that is why the riskier asset class Whenever, you know, once in five years, 10 years, when you, if, when you have large drawdowns, maybe because of a COVID situation or a global financial crisis, it kind of eats away a large amount of previous outperformance, right? So, it's, and this cannot be predicted. Could you have predicted COVID? No, no way. Yeah. Could you have predicted the GFC? Maybe some people did to some extent, but certainly not the extent of uh, the crash of the markets. So, I think it's important to have this in mind that how do you manage your drawdowns in your portfolio? And when I say portfolio, it's not just equity portfolio or debt portfolio, or total portfolio, total portfolio that yeah. we have. Absolutely. So just to kind of summarize this part of the conversation, which is eye-opening for me actually, that in a, over a long period of time, equities and uh, fixed income have broadly done similar, maybe give or take a little bit here and there. In five-year ruling periods, 60% uh, of times equities have outperformed, but that, as you said, that's a point toss. And uh, because risk is asymmetric, uh, you know, we, one has to think about drawdowns uh, as well. And also you mentioned like, you know, different geographies have performed differently. China, Germany, etc. have not done that well. Even countries like the US, I think have had 10, 20 years when the equity markets have not performed at all and treasuries have returned better. And so, and I think particularly in India, because so much of the investor base is three years old, uh, because, you know, kind of many people started investing post-COVID and they have seen a fantastic equity run. Uh, this is something to think about that you want to have a portfolio uh, which you know you can manage versus putting all your eggs in one basket because you don't know as you said 23 to 28 what is going to happen. Yes, uh, I, if I can sort of add one or two points there. One is do not extrapolate short-term performance to long-term. You know, right. Just because last three years returns have been great. It doesn't matter which asset class. I'm, I'm not talking about it. Don't assume that the next 5, 10, 15 years will look like the last 2 or 3 years. Correct. Right? So, this is it's very tempting to do that. But be very, very careful when we do that. Uh, the second is, and this is very important, that in the long run, we still do expect equities to do well. Yes. Because the economy is a fast-growing economy. Right? So, none of what I say today should be taken as sort of to say that equities are going to underperform. No, Absolutely. I still believe that that's a way to make money in the long run. But the way to look at, understand the risk when you're making these decisions is, is the limited point I'm making. Here. Absolutely. And hence, having a more diversified portfolio, thinking of allocation and, and so on and so forth. Fantastic. Uh, this is uh, very, very uh, interesting. So, maybe, Siva, we 
dive a little bit into the asset class itself, right? Like fixed income. Can you just help us understand what is what does fixed income mean? And you know, yeah. So at the core of it, uh, again, it's good to contrast with respect to equities and fixed income, right? What is equity? Equity is is a, it's a share in the profits of a company. Correct. Right. Uh, and to that extent, because the profits of the company can be volatile, the expected dividends or the returns from equities are uncertain. Fixed income, in contrast, the returns are determined by a formula. Typically, it's a fixed coupon, which means you get a certain rate of return on a bond. Yeah, government security pays, let's say, 7% per annum, which means you get 7% per annum. There's no questions about what your rate of return is going to be. Certain fixed income instruments are so-called floating rate instruments, which means their coupon can change, but they are still set by formula. So in fixed income, the returns or the expected returns are kind of known in advance, right? There is still price risk. So obviously your, whole, your returns are determined by the, both the coupon as well as the price movement. But to a large extent, the expected returns are known at the time of making, making your investment. And this is a crucial difference. So I think fixed income basically is an asset class where you get a coupon or a, or a, or a return um, or an income based on a certain formula or a fixed rate. So if, if and, and that's a crucial difference with respect to other asset classes, right? So what, what goes into fixed income is really anything, anything which and the most common type of fixed income security is a fixed rate security, which pays an annual or a semi-annual or otherwise coupon and matures at a specific date, right? So which means you know the start date, you know the end date and how much you're going to make in between. So this is at the core of it what a fixed income instrument is. Again, unlike equities, which is permanent in nature, which is that this doesn't have a maturity and the dividend rates changes as per the profitability. Right. And so uh, basically in the fixed income, hence contractually, the borrower is obligated to pay you some interest uh, quarterly, annually, semi-annually, whatever it is. Uh, and if they don't, then, you know, they, they go bankrupt and all the other things happen. In the case of equity, you know, if the company doesn't make money, you don't make money broadly. That's the, that's kind of the I think in equities, the and you touched upon it, and it's very important. In equity, the crucial risk is what? If the company doesn't do well, the stock price goes down. Goes down yeah. So it's a price risk becomes a crucial risk. Right. In fixed income, the price risk is not so big. The volatility of bonds tends to be very low. But what can happen is if the company goes, if it's not able to make money or goes belly up, well, you can lose your entire principal. Right. I mean, that's that's called credit risk. That, right. The risk that you don't get paid right. um, your your coupon and the and the principal. Uh, because the company goes belly up. So it's, it's a very, very different risk. So another way of looking at it is that equities can be volatile and go up and down and can go down quite a bit. In fixed income, the volatility tends to be very less. But if there is a credit event, poof, yeah. it's a it's like a digital event and it, you, you lose a lot of money at once. Right. So that's something to keep in mind, yes. Understood. And so what are different types of uh, fixed income instruments like different entities issuing it and See, the largest market in India by a long way is a government security. So it's the government of India borrows money, the, the state governments borrow money. So that's the largest market by a, by a long, long way. In addition, corporates borrow. So, uh, and then there are many small niches you don't really want to get into because much smaller. But by and large, if you look at it, the two large segments which borrow money are the government and the corporates. Investors into, into uh, bonds are very different from equities. Right. Uh, in equities, you have uh, domestic institutions, foreign institutions, and retail. In uh, bonds, it's largely domestic institutions. There right. is negligible retail participation, and there is very, very small foreign investor participation. So it's it's largely a domestic institutional uh, right. business. And what drives that? Like, why would foreign institutions not buy, or why isn't retail uh, a big participant? Uh, 
good questions <laughs> <laughs> and various committees have been set up over the last 25 30 years to right. answer this right. and largely failed at answering it right so this is uh, you know at a, at, a, at a much greater level than either of us the answer to this question uh, but i think fundamentally uh, the kind of ease infrastructure that we have created on equity side or you know with, with, we were the first country to offer kind of dmat you know and and uh, settlement cycles short settlement cycles uh, guaranteed settlements and you know so on and so forth so you know that infrastructure has not really existed on fixed income side especially for retail so it's been largely an institutional market uh, it's a large market by the way we didn't get to that when we discussed the size of the market i mean indian equities as we recently hit the 4 trillion dollar mark right but about half of that is insider, which means owned by the, like, you know, for example, public sector entities, government owns a large stake yeah, exactly. and private sector entities, the promoters own a large stake. About 50% of that is free float, right? So about $2 trillion of free float uh, market capitalization of Indian equities. Indian fixed income market, bond market, $2 trillion. So the size of our market is comparable and there is no such thing as promoter in debt. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's borrowing. So, you know, everything is market. So, so the size of the market is comparable. The only difference is the investors are uh, institutional, largely because of the structure of the uh, of the market, which makes it much more harder for retail to participate. It's uh, and foreign investors, it's it's has historically it's been a challenge for various reasons. Uh, but you've heard this uh, news in the recent past that India is getting included in certain global bond indices, which should drive foreign participation. Just like foreign investors have invested in India because of participation in global indices, right? A big chunk of global money which has come into Indian equities is index linked and not index linked as in only ETF and passives, but even active managers linked to indices which have India as a share in equities. And going forward, I think we should see a much greater participation by foreign investors as India, Indian bonds, starting with GSEX, get included in global benchmarks. Right. Now, uh, so we spoke about corporates issuing debt and governments issuing debt. The two will obviously have very different characteristics, uh, return profiles, presumably also investors. Uh, so if you could throw a little bit of light on. Yeah. Interestingly, not so much the investors, like I said, domestic institutions, banks, mutual funds, insurance companies, pension funds. They are the large the investors. Yeah. Okay. A little bit here, a little bit there, you know, depending on their mandates, right? Uh, there may be a little difference. But yes, the characteristics are very, very different. Government is sovereign. It cannot default. The government of India can essentially uh, print as much rupees as it wants to service its debt. Uh, so it cannot default on rupee debt. Corporates, that's not the case. If yep. a corporate doesn't make money, hmm. uh, this is a, a term we have all heard, NPAs. NPA is nothing but a default, right? A company has not been able to pay. Uh, all these cases that we hear about in you know NCLT, IBC kind of cases, are all because companies aren't, aren't able to repay. So in the case of corporates, the crucial risk is credit risk just the inability to service that debt. In the case of government bonds, that credit risk doesn't exist. But both government and corporate bonds also carry price risk, which is the risk of the prices of the bonds going up and down for other reasons, um, uh, because of economic cycles, interest rate cycles. So there is a price risk. And government of India tends to issue much longer duration bonds. And maybe we can get into the conversation of what is duration and, yep. and all that. And that increases the price risk. So typically government securities carry slightly higher price risk but no credit risk and corporate securities typically, again, everything is typical, it's not always exception, typically carry slightly lower price risk, but higher credit risk. 
and hence so because there is credit risk here and not here would it is it fair to say that typically corporate bonds would yield higher because yes. they will you know yes. there is a credit risk in building and different corporates have different credit quality right right so corporate credit quality is measured by what's called credit rating so you have triple a which is the highest double a single a triple b and so on and so forth so as you go down that credit curve the typically the yields increase right. so a double a triple a bond would yield better than a sovereign a double a bond would yield better than a triple a and so on and so forth so you get compensated for taking that higher risk by going by by the higher coupon offered by those securities understood and uh, as a retail investor uh, uh, there will be many ways i presume to invest uh, one of them obviously is mutual funds and i just got feeling that that is perhaps the largest way of retail to participate so would mutual funds be like is there a separate government securities mutual fund and a separate corporate or like is there a mixed or how, how does it work so i want to step one step back first for most investors especially retail investors fixed income and bonds are not actually very significant part of their portfolio right, right? so to start with i'm not sure whether that's uh, necessarily people have looked at it as an asset class what they do is they keep it in other fixed income instruments which are not bonds so for example you keep your money in a bank fd it is also a fixed income security instrument at the end of the day Absolutely. right or you keep it in a corporate fd yep. so you get access to fixed income through something which is other than a bond market yep right that is where a large part of or pf uh, or ppf or, uh, or even a pf or a yep. ppf right so you you keep it in any kind of these small savings accounts and you effectively get a fixed rate of return uh, uh, and and typically that is where most people have their fixed income uh, allocation when it comes to mutual funds yes you do have different categories government funds which invest in gsecs funds which invest in corporates and funds which have a slightly higher credit risk which typically invest in double a and below securities and so on so so there are these different types of securities uh, uh, different types of mutual fund schemes which invest in this different categories uh, that's a long conversation in itself but mutual funds are just one way of accessing bond market right, right. you do have these uh, direct access to corporates corporate bonds there are uh, there are platforms there are uh, wealth management firms which sell retail debt uh, you have uh, if you want to go down the credit space you have aifs and other uh, uh, funds which offer much higher yielding lower rated typically unlisted bonds which are which are much uh, higher yielding but obviously carry significantly higher credit risk so the 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 spectrum of bonds is tends to be quite large so you know you can look at a government security 10 year government of india trades at about 7 quarter today uh you can go into a into an unlisted uh, uh high yield security where the returns are like, or the, the coupons are, will be well into the double digits right so that's the kind of spectrum that you see uh, that you can get a wide variety of fixed income instrument depending on what risk you want to uh, take great uh, so siva uh, last question for for this uh, topic uh, there is this uh, i we started with a little bit of a myth buster we'll end with a little bit of a, a similar gospel truth right or notion which is there is this notion that if you are x years of age you should invest 100 minus x of your you know wealth into equities and the rest into fixed income what are your thoughts around this yeah this is the classic uh uh what you call a, a portfolio right that you say that you know when you are looking to deploy your money as you get older you want to have less risk on your portfolio and therefore you need to have a higher allocation to fixed income and when you're young you have greater ability to take risk and therefore you can have a higher allocation to equity it makes perfect sense 
the crucial difference, uh, the way I, why I have a little bit of a issue with simple models like this is that, what is it that you're using the money for? If you're using your investments largely for yourself, a model like this works great, right? So you save and then when you retire, you're going to live off that money. Perfect, makes a lot of sense. But most of us aren't investing like that, right? Because when you, for example, take my own case, the way I look at my own portfolio is I kind of look at three buckets in some sense. One is what I call commitments. So for example, if I have a mortgage to pay off, if I have uh, you know, kids education or any other expense related to that, so I need to have a pot of money which is which is linked to that. And obviously, I you know, depending on the tenor of that, I need to make sure that I don't take too much risk on that part of the portfolio. Obviously, if, if it is a if it's a long term, I can. The second part is the classic part, which is what I'm going to live on. Uh, let's say me and my wife. What are we going to live on, especially after retirement? So that's the second part. And then what's left over, right, is either you know blow up money, right, or legacy. And for many of us, that part actually is important. Right. What is it that we leave behind for our kids, grandkids? If you look at it from that perspective, the 100 minus age makes no sense because it's 100 minus whose age? Mm. It's not yours, it's probably your grandkids' age. Yep. So, therefore, you, your allocation may actually benefit from a much greater allocation to equities than what the model suggests. Right? That 100 minus age works for that part of your portfolio which you expect to keep for yourself. And the part of the portfolio which you expect uh, to sort of uh, uh, leave as a bequeath uh, kind of as, uh, money, I think you need to have a much longer term and therefore the kind of assets that you own over there, you can take risk. You can invest in perhaps startup companies. You can invest in, uh, you know, obviously direct equity, I mean equities and equity mutual funds and so on obviously is important. But you can take different and different kind of risks, which uh, different kind of investments which pay off over a much longer cycle uh, than you think. So I think we have to have this sort of in our minds. We need to have a clear understanding of what my portfolio looks like. What are my goals? What am I saving for? And if we have that segmented approach, I think we do a much better than what a simple hundred minus age uh, tells you. I, I keep talking to a lot of investors and especially people who are uh, significantly older, maybe into the 60s and 70s. And when I tell them this, it kind of, it's like a light bulb goes off, right? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, I'm not keeping this money for me. Right. And so I think it's, it, and, and, and we are not really trained to, you know, we, why do we do this 100 minus age? Because some US textbook probably said that. Right. Right. But we, we are not living like Americans. Right. In America, what happens? When you're 18 years old, you get kicked out of your parents' house. And then you live on your own and then the parents live on their own. That's not the way we work. So let's kind of create our own models. I think uh, we need to have this, uh, this multi, multiple kind of uh, portfolio approach if we, if we to do well for ourselves, our own investments. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Shiva, for that conversation. To just summarize this uh, uh, eye-opening uh, for me. Uh, so number one, in India, over a long period of time, over the last 30 years, uh, equities and uh, fixed income broadly have returned similar uh, returns. If you take five-year rolling, equities have maybe performed 60% of the time. When they've outperformed, they outperformed a lot, but also they've had draw drawdowns. And because risk is not symmetrical, that's why the uh, averages kind of equate. Uh, and hence the uh, importance of asset allocation and just not projecting three-year returns to, to uh, the future. 
uh, equities will continue to do well in India uh, because India is a growing economy, etc. But there will be periods of drawdown and hence people have to think of a, a portfolio. Uh, we also spoke about the different types of fixed income uh, and particularly we spoke about government bonds and corporate bonds and the difference between them which is here we have interest rate risk and maybe a little bit of pricing risk. Here we have interest rate risk and credit risk as well and which is why the latter yields more. And so when people think of investing in corporates, they also have to take into factor credit risk involved uh, uh, with that instrument. Uh, uh, we spoke about how uh, equity markets of different countries, like some countries have done fantastically well, like India, US, but there are many countries and even in countries like the US, there have been long periods of time when the market has basically done very little. Uh, and last we spoke about, again, going back to the notion of asset allocation, uh, it is important to think about what you want to achieve out of your various pots of money and allocate assets and uh, portfolios accordingly so that uh, uh, you know uh, you are getting to the outcomes and you're not going by some simple rule books. It's a great conversation. Thanks a lot, uh, Siva, for, for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening into this episode of Open Dialogue. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. We are overwhelmed by the response that we've received and really look forward to your comments and feedback. Do like and subscribe to our channel to keep track of new episodes that are coming through. Thank you.